Uh, today, however, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from that study since it is Pentecost and we're going to be focusing in on the role and work of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to begin today with the words of Jesus up here in John's Gospel, starting in chapter 15. And I would encourage you to turn with me there in your copy of God's Word uh, or on your phone. If you need a Bible, we have some back here on our resource table. Feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't have one at home, please keep it and let that be our gift to you today. So John chapter 15, we're going to begin in verse 26, and then we're going to jump to verse 4 of chapter 16. This is Jesus speaking. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of the Lord. On this Pentecost Sunday, we look at Jesus' own words concerning the Holy Spirit as he explained to his followers that it was, in fact, good it was good news that Jesus was going away and that the Spirit was coming, which sounds like a remarkable thing to say. But depending on your faith background, you may either know very little about the Holy Spirit or you might have a complicated relationship with the Holy Spirit because of weird things that you've seen in the church that have been attributed to him. So today we're going to get a quick biblical overview of the Spirit, and we're also going to root ourselves in Jesus' words that we just read here in John as we seek to interact with the Spirit in our lives today. And unlike the way that I most often preach, you're actually going to get like a three-point sermon from me today, so enjoy. First of all, the Holy Spirit is not a New Testament invention. The Spirit is not a figure that we meet once we get into the book of Acts. We read Acts 2 this morning, which is this pivotal moment in the life of the church where the Spirit comes to indwell the lives of believers, but that is not the first time that we meet the Holy Spirit in Scripture. You know, with Jesus, we see prophecy of a coming Messiah throughout the Old Testament, but we don't really meet the embodied, incarnate Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
until we get to the New Testament. And it can be easy sometimes to like think the same thing of the Holy Spirit, even though there are all of these allusions to Christ throughout the Old Testament, and even though the whole narrative of the Scripture is pointing to him and his coming, we don't really see him and hear him physically until the New Testament. The Holy Spirit, however, is present and active throughout the entire book, throughout the entire scripture. The reality is we see him everywhere. In fact, he's on page one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Have you ever noticed that? In the very beginning, I think most of us are inclined to think of God the Father being the primary in the work of creation. And yet Genesis declares to us that the Spirit is present as well, hovering over the face of the waters. In the same way, John's gospel declares to us that the Son, Jesus Christ, was also present at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all present at the moment of creation. When Genesis says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, it uses this Hebrew word, ruach, ruach, which means breath or wind. And we see those words used to point to the Spirit and the work of the Spirit throughout the Scriptures. So interesting, Jesus tells the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So, so what's notable there is even Jesus is connecting the work of the Holy Spirit in the case of Nicodemus to this, this born-againness, to salvation, to the work of God in our lives. But, but notice how he described him and, and how he talked about the work of the Spirit. It's like the wind. You hear it. You feel it, but where did it come from? Where is it going? He says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Spirit has this mysterious, sort of mystical quality about him that, that you can't fully explain where he's come from or where he's going to work or how he's going to work. You can't put him in a box. Later in John 20, Jesus literally breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Later still, when the, script, or when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, as we read, did you notice it said, it made a noise? What did it sound like? Like a mighty, rushing wind. And what, what it said was, it was such a prominent sound that people like started coming from everywhere. And that's what brought this congregation together. Do you notice that? The Spirit, like not just seeing something happening, 
Not just hearing what people were doing, but there is this other sound, this wind sound. Fascinating. All of those examples are from the New Testament, though. So what about the old? Well, back in Genesis chapter 2, God forms the man out of the dust of the earth. And then what does he do? How does he come to life? God breathes into him the ruach of life. The breath of life, it says. So fascinating when you compare that with Jesus then breathing on his disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God come upon people to empower them for certain work. For some, like Samson, the Spirit gives him strength. For the prophets, the Spirit of God gave them words. For example, the famous words of Isaiah in Isaiah 61, that Jesus repeats, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. These aren't my words. This isn't just me. The spirit of God is with me. So the spirit is by no means a New Testament invention, but instead has been present and active from the very beginning. And guys, we could spend the entire day walking through examples of the spirit at work throughout the whole of scripture. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is God, the Holy Spirit. And how we view God is of the utmost importance. Throughout Christian history, the most common symbol of this has been the triangle. The triangle. And we've heard that God is Trinity. God is triune. But, but just to see the triangle can be helpful to us. God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. This is one God in three persons. That's how the church has talked about him for centuries. These are not three separate gods. This is one God. This is something that catechisms throughout the ages have sought to encapsulate. A catechism is basically an educational model that uses a question and answer format to teach biblical truth or to teach doctrine and, and the catechisms throughout the ages have, have tried to encapsulate this, and it's difficult because ultimately what we're talking about is indescribable. A word that sometimes is sometimes used to talk about this is the word ineffable, that God is ineffable, meaning in reality, he is really too great to be adequately described in words, yet we try. The Westminster Catechism, written in 1647, asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead, as he's sometimes called, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity? How many persons are there? And the answer is, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same substance, equal in power and glory. The New City Catechism that we use here with our kids says this, there are three persons in one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. 
Now, notice what both of those are trying to communicate. Not just the makeup of the Godhead, not just that he is Father, Son, and Spirit, but also what it's trying to communicate is that God is, the Father, Son, and Spirit are, are the same in substance, that they are equal, as it said, in power and glory. It's trying to describe to us the way that they relate to each other. Some fancy words that we could use. They are co-eternal, meaning they have all existed together as one God and three persons. In eternity past, they will always exist in eternity future. So if your tendency is to think, well, maybe the Father and the Spirit existed at one point, and then the Son came around, you believe something that's not only untrue, you believe something that's heretical biblically. If you caught our, we did a podcast series a while back on the Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Creed was basically put together because of a false teaching concerning the Father, Son, and Spirit. And the false teaching was that the Father at some point had created the Son, in the same way that he created you and me. It was basically teaching that he, the Father, Son, and Spirit, had not eternally existed, but that at some point in time, God had said, oh, I think I'm going to make a son. But the scriptures don't tell us that. No, no, no. The scriptures suggest that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So they are co-equal Another big word is they are consubstantial. They're consubstantial, meaning that they all have the same being. They all have the same substance. And, and notice that Jesus alludes to this to some extent in uh, our text today in John. When he talks about Everything that the Spirit will say to you are my words, and, and everything I have has come from the Father. Notice, if you, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus says things like that often. He says things like, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. And what Jesus is pointing to ultimately is that we're all the same, right? Like, this isn't one God doing one thing and another God doing another thing and another God doing another thing. No, no, no. What I have has come to me from the Father, and what the Spirit has has come to him from the Father. And what is the Father's is also mine, and what is the Spirit's is also mine. Like So there is this consubstantiality to the Father, Son, and Spirit. They are all of the same being and substance. And then finally, they are co-equal. They're co-equal meaning that one person of the Godhead is not more or less significant than the others. And, and so this is important because I think this is possibly our greatest temptation, is to elevate one member of the Godhead over others or to diminish one member of the Godhead beneath others. Again, depending on your faith background, it's possible that your experience in the church has been that one part of the Godhead has been maybe primarily talked about, within a particular tradition that you grew up in. I grew up in an evangelical church hearing mostly about Jesus. Every, everything is about Jesus and you believing the truth of the gospel and turning to him in faith and being saved. That's wonderful stuff, right? And, and so as it should be, we talk about Jesus all the time, but we can't talk about Jesus to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit. 
So I didn't hear a whole lot about the Holy Spirit growing up, right? I didn't, I didn't know much about the Holy Spirit. And to some extent, people in, in, the, in, the, in the church I grew up in, people were leery of talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seems a little weird and mis- mystical and mysterious. And, we don't, you know, there, there are all kinds of wacky things happening out there that people say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. So mm, I don't know if that was your experience. It could be that you were on the other end of the spectrum, if you come from a Pentecostal tradition or the Assemblies of God, it's possible that you maybe primarily heard about the Spirit or the work of the Holy Spirit. But God is triune, right? He's, he's co-eternal, co-equal, consubstantial, and the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally worthy of our worship. They're all equally worthy of our obedience. In other words, if you disobey the Spirit of God, you're disobeying God. You're not disobeying just one part of God. You are disobeying the creator of all things. And then third, the Holy Spirit empowers the church. Let's look back at John 15 and 16. An important question for us is what does Jesus say about the Spirit? That's just a great question in general if you're studying the Bible. What does Jesus have to say? If you're reading through the Old Testament, ask yourself the question, what does Jesus have to say about this? You'll be amazed at how often Jesus talks about what we think of as the Old Testament. Because for him, those were the scriptures. Those were the Hebrew scriptures. So Jesus talks about them constantly. He alludes to them constantly. What does Jesus say? Asking that question with regards to the Holy Spirit is critical and, and I say that because the tendency is to want to look at examples of the Spirit's power at work and, and take what I would call interpretive leaps by saying that what the Spirit does in a particular biblical instance or in a particular moment or with a particular person is what the Spirit will always do, which sort of goes against that whole he's like the wind type thing, right? Right? He's unpredictable. We can't put the Spirit of God in a box or anticipate how he's going to work or what exactly he's going to do in any particular moment. And the reality is that the biblical evidence is that the Spirit empowers people in exactly the ways that they most need to accomplish God's purposes. That the Spirit empowers people in exactly the ways that they need to accomplish God's purposes. So here's what I mean. We read Acts 2 this morning. The Spirit comes, the apostles begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is an incredibly famous, significant, and I would say controversial moment. At least in the context of Acts 2, that didn't mean they were speaking gibberish. It didn't mean they were speaking some kind of heavenly language or prayer language. It meant other human languages. And in fact, Luke, who wrote Acts, goes into great detail in Acts 2, as we read, to note the fact that people come because they've heard this sound, and they recognize these men who are speaking are Galileans, but they go, man, I'm hearing this in my own language, right? So they recognize, in, at least in this moment, they recognize actual human languages that are being spoken. And man, it is a remarkable thing. Like the Spirit has done something miraculous and incredible at Pentecost. But the reason why it's controversial is because since we see that thing happen several times throughout the New Testament, some people have sought to say that 
that that particular empowerment of the Spirit must happen to everyone or you're not saved. And that's significant. Now, that's a significant interpretive leap because the Bible doesn't make that claim. The Bible doesn't say that. The reality is that the Spirit gives all kinds of gifts and all kinds of empowerment to people. And the gift of tongues is only one that people want to apply in this way, which doesn't really make sense. The prophets of the Old Testament were all empowered by the Spirit of God to declare the actual words of God. And yet, everyone today does not have the ability, because of the Holy Spirit, to declare the actual words of God in the way that the Old Testament prophets did. Everyone clearly does not have that gift. The Spirit came upon Saul, and he became a king, first king of Israel. The Spirit then left Saul and came upon David, and David became a king. But no one's making the case that the Holy Spirit coming in your life means that you become royalty today. No, this is, these are examples of how the Spirit has worked at different times, in different circumstances, with different people, for different purposes, all to accomplish what God had for them, all to equip them and empower them for the work that God had. Now, this is not a message about speaking in tongues, right? So... I'm not going to spend a lot of time there today. If that's something you'd like to dig into, man, I'd be more than happy to do that with you. Don't miss this. To say that the whole point of the Holy Spirit coming is to give believers one particular gift is to diminish the Spirit. It's to diminish the Spirit and His work. It does not recognize the myriad of ways that he has worked and empowered throughout history, and it ignores what Jesus says about him, which is our question. What does Jesus say? In our text today, Jesus says a number of things about the Spirit, all of which are incredibly important. First of all, he says, the Spirit will bear witness. He says, the the Spirit will bear witness about me, meaning the Spirit testifies to the divinity of Christ. The Spirit speaks what is true of Christ. And Jesus says, you're going to do the same things talking to his followers. You're going to testify to the truth of me as well. Your lives are going to be living examples. I think even in today's world, the Spirit testifies to the the reality and the divinity of Jesus. The truth of the gospel And the Spirit empowers our lives to do the same. That we would be people whose words and whose actions, whose very lives, point to who Christ is and what Christ has done and why the gospel is good news. Why it's like life-changing, life-altering news. Jesus says the Spirit will be a helper. In fact, he calls him the helper, capital H. Jesus says it's actually good news for you guys. That me, the son, that I am going away and so that the spirit might come, so that the helper can come. And how does he help? Man, we could spend all day on that. How does he help? Paul talks about fruit. And and it's, it's okay to say that if you are a believer, there should be evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
Paul says what we're looking for is what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. Not just one particular gift, but actually a variety of things. And, and what Paul says is it's stuff like love and joy and peace. Things that when people look at us, look at somebody that the Spirit is indwelling, that, that they would see something that is in and of itself kind of otherworldly, especially when you consider our culture today. When you look at people in our world today, is the first word that comes to your mind love? If you hop on social media, is it joy and peace that comes to your mind? No. Why? Because most people are not being led by the Spirit of God. Most people are not submitting themselves to the Spirit of God. Even many people who would claim Christ, possibly many of us in this room. The Spirit has come to be our helper, to move us closer and closer to the will of God. Jesus says the Spirit will convict he says the Spirit will convict about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. About sin, he says, because there are those who don't believe in me. There are those who don't know Christ. And so if you're a follower of Jesus now, at some point in time, God drew you to himself. And his Holy Spirit played a role in that. He's playing a role even now to convict you of your sin. right? To, to bring those things to your mind to help you recognize how far short you fall and how good the news of the gospel is, right? When you recognize who you actually are, how unworthy you are of, of, of the grace that God is extending to you, how unworthy you are of being adopted into God's family and called a beloved child, man, it just, it, it, it produces in us that kind of fruit that I was talking about a minute ago. Love and joy and peace, man, if God would do that for me, What does that mean? It means my life should now be wholly devoted to him. Wholly about him. Wholly for him. He will convict us of our sin and will point us towards what is true. He will convict about righteousness. Jesus says, because you'll no longer have me. For, for Jesus' followers, they... They could literally look to the embodied, incarnate Christ and see like a physical, walking around manifestation of righteousness. They could go, righteousness looks like that. But Jesus says, there's coming a time when I'm not going to be walking right beside you, right next to you in a physical, embodied way. And so the Holy Spirit is going to be the one that points you to righteousness, that shows you what that looks like. He says he will convict about judgment because the enemy of this world will be judged or has been judged and will be sentenced. And so will all of those who don't follow Christ. Finally, as we've said, he declares that the Spirit speaks truth and not just his own words, not just some truth that the Spirit has come up with, but the same truth that the Son was speaking, the same truth he heard from the Father, because this is all God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit is not going to say something different from what Jesus said. So that's great news for us, because if anybody comes to you in today's world and says, the Spirit of God has told me this, and you go, wait a second, I, I, don't, like, I don't see that in the book. Like, I don't, I don't see Jesus saying that same thing. That's an indication to us something's up. Something's amiss. We're not going to say different things. We're going to speak truth. Now, here's the thing. Many of us would probably affirm a lot of what I've said today, hopefully most of what I've said today. We'd probably affirm that we believe these things to be true, but, but how many of us are actually intentionally seeking to walk in the Spirit, which, which I think means to like listen and obey what the Spirit is saying? Like how many of us are actually intentionally doing that? We're waking up and we're, and we're, we're seeking to center our lives on the leadership of God every day. The reality is that's a big challenge for most of us. Like our sinful hearts draw us away from that. Like we have to very intentionally and very practically mold our lives around the gospel so that we don't just find ourselves off in no man's land doing whatever we think is best. If, if the scriptures are true, then in many ways the whole of the New Testament is the story of Israel trying to do that very thing over and over again and failing every time. Trying to go, no, 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 God, I know better. We know better. And then finding themselves way out here going, what, what is happening? Like, why are these terrible things coming? And then God redeeming them and restoring them and them following him for a little while and then slowly drifting away again. We're not different. We do the same things. Like, we don't need to just be, like, restored to him or reminded of his truth. Like, we need to have that happening every day. And thankfully, his mercies are new every day because we need mercy every day. We need grace every day. We need to be pointed back to the gospel every single day. Francis Chan, in his book on the Holy Spirit called Forgotten God, says this. He says, churchgoers all across the nation say the Holy Spirit has entered them. They claim that God has given them a supernatural ability to follow Christ, put sin to death, and serve the church. Christians talk about being born again, and they say that they were dead and have now come to life. We've become hardened to those words, he says. But they're powerful words that have significant meaning. Yet when those outside the church see no difference in our lives, they begin to question our integrity, our sanity, and even worse, our God. And can you blame them? is what he says. So in other words, what Chan's pointing to is the fact that as Christians, we claim something that is like beyond unbelievable. Not only did God send his only son to die and come back from the dead, and that somehow through that, we, in spite of our sin, can be reconciled to the Father. We also affirm that God, the Holy Spirit, has now come to live within us. And when we say that, we don't mean that metaphorically. We mean that literally, that God has literally come to live within us. So what does it say when people around you 
Don't see anything remarkable or anything different in your life or anything that would remotely point to the fact that there has been at some point in time some kind of significant change for you. Like something went down, something happened. And that that what happened is that you have been born again. You've been changed by the gospel of Christ and the spirit of God. Can you blame people who aren't interested in the church when what they see in the church is not the fruit of the spirit? Of course not. I totally understand why many people are completely uninterested in church. And it's not because of Jesus. It's not because they're uninterested in Jesus. It's because they're uninterested in you and me. Because if they're going to get hurt, it's not going to be from Jesus. It's going to be from me or you. And if you've been hurt in the church, it's not Jesus that has done that. It's not God that has done that. It's some other sinful human being who is in need of God's grace, just like you are and just like I am. The thing that's abundantly clear, and I'm, I'm landing the plane, guys. <laughs> the thing that's abundantly clear is that in Acts 2, something significant happened. Something significant happened at Pentecost. But what has changed is not the Spirit himself. The Spirit has not changed, or the kinds of abilities or gifts that he can give to people has not changed. What has changed is the way that the Spirit is interacting with us as followers of God. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the Spirit come upon certain people at certain times for certain purposes, but now the Spirit indwells all those who call upon the name of Christ. He's not just living in that holy of holies in the temple in Jerusalem. But when Jesus was crucified, what happened to that room? Do you remember? There was a, a, a heavy curtain that covered the doorway, and it was ripped. And it somehow ripped from the top and ripped to, all the way to the bottom. And, you know, some people looked at that and thought, man, that's weird. How in the world did that happen? Like, there's earthquakes going on. It's a strange day all the way around, Right? Right? But it wasn't just a physical thing. It was also a symbolic thing, representing the fact that the Spirit of God has now been loosed on the lives of believers. To not just dwell in one place or like in a church building where we all have to go there to be in his presence or to be with him. But no, no, no. Now he is with you and in you. Incredible. That's what has changed. The Spirit truly comes to live within us. And we mean that literally. And how we think about that truth and respond to that truth is critical because the Spirit, guys, has not come to live within you so that you can be a self-focused, casual consumer of religious things. No, no, no. He's come to live within you so that the truth, voice, and power of God can be accessible to you so that you grow up into Christ. And so that you actually can step into and do the things that God has prepared for you to do. That is how he helps us. That is who he is. That is what he's pointing us towards. And let us go to God in prayer this morning and thank him for that. And ask him to forgive us of the ways that we don't give ourselves over to the leadership and voice of the Spirit. Because we're afraid or we're unsure, let us ask him to give us boldness and clarity and all of the other things, hope, joy, love, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, endurance, self-control. 
I need them all. And so do you. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks this morning for the truth of your holy scriptures, for the goodness of your spirit. God, what an incredible privilege to call you our Father, to call Jesus our Savior, and to recognize that your Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. God, we thank you for that. We praise your holy name. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Stand with us.